Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you very much. Wait, I'm getting one more minute here. <laughs> Not everyone's done. Okay, now we're good to go. Awesome. Good. Well, welcome again. Glad you're here. Uh, Christmas season. You know, Christmas can be a little confusing at times. I don't know if you ever find it confusing. I got in the car this week and I uh, turned the radio on and it was just driving over to Camas and I thought, I'm going to just turn on this station that plays all Christmas music, you know, and, and really they play about three songs over and over again, but... Um, but this song came on, and very recognizable, but I thought, you know, I really haven't listened to this um, for some obvious reasons. Since I was probably 10 years old, I'm just going to listen to it all the way through. Well, it turns out it was a very old rendition, and uh, an old edition, uh, original of the song. See if you recognize it. It goes like this. Here, here comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus. Write down. Very good. You guys, you're the best this weekend by far. So. Vixen and Blitzen and all his reindeer pulling on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. So hang your stockings and say your prayers, because Santa Claus is... Very good. Here comes Santa Claus, last verse. Here comes Santa Claus. Write down... He'll come around when chimes ring out. It's Christmas time again. Peace on earth will come to all when we, if we just follow the light. Interesting. Well, if that light is Jesus, that's actually fairly true. If we just follow the light. So here we go. Ready for the big finish? So let's give thanks to the Lord above, because... Okay, now see, intellectually I know that, that God's never confused, because he's all wise and all knowing, and he's got it all under control. But I'm thinking if there was ever a chance for him to be confused, it's got to be the moment where we all do what this song says hang our stockings, pull our covers over our head, say thanks to the Lord above that. Yeah, I mean, at that point, I'm like, I, I'm not getting it. I just don't know. We do some funny things with Christmas, let's just face it, and we end up a little bit confused, or we, we're probably confusing someone. But in fairness, uh, really, Christmas was a little confusing right from the start, right at the very beginning, the first one. You have, uh, you have this story, and uh, it's, it's a great event. It's a baby. Well, no, it's God coming and drawing near to us. Well, which is it? Well, it's both. Okay, now, wait a second. Now I'm really confused, right? Christmas, if you find it confusing, that's okay. I think it was a little bit. Now, next week, Pastor Bob is going to uh, talk about the Christmas story proper, and, and he'll be sharing a message of of the gospel and, and really focused on our guests next weekend, so invite some people to hear that and the good news that we find within Christmas. Um, this week, uh, I would like to think a little bit about an unusual Christmas text. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 8. Now in your notes it says 1 Corinthians. That is an error, my fault. I tried to stop the copy machine. It wouldn't listen to me, so that's what we got. And uh, so it's 2 Corinthians 8, and there Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, and he's telling them about some some believers in other parts of the world who were poor, they were experiencing uh, poverty and hunger, and uh, he was say, saying to the church in Corinth, you guys have the, the means to help this situation, and he begins to discuss with them why they should be generous. 
He gives lots of different reasons, and, but we're not, we're not really talking about giving or generosity today. Um, but one of the reasons he gives is Christmas, basically, and we find that in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. He says, now, take the example of Christ. He says, you know the generous grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you could become rich. He says, you understand that grace has been demonstrated to you and delivered to you by means of the incarnation. The fact that the the divine Son of God took on flesh, he began to live within a human life. That's the incarnation. And and then Paul uh, illustrates it briefly under these kind of theological headings, these illustrations of uh, riches and poverty. This is not the rags to riches story. This is the ultimate riches to rags story. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to think about the incarnation and, uh, and the Christmas story from that perspective, prepare ourselves for that. Now, he begins, of course, with that first point. To understand the incarnation, to understand Christmas from that point of view is to see that Christ, or the Son of God, was fabulously rich. Take any definition you would like of rich, he was fabulously wealthy. Every, every concept of riches except probably our favorites, which would be, you know, a big bank account and a stock portfolio. All, all, other than those, you know, he's just I- incredibly rich. In a parallel passage in Philippians chapter 2, we, we see Paul saying it this way, that he was, in his very essence, his nature, he was God. He was divine. In fact, Christ has uh, had all the divine attributes and capabilities. He could do what God does. And the New Testament writers begin to unfold this in a variety of different ways. Now, of course, their initial audiences, they were writing, you know, the Gospels or the Epistles or something. Uh, Their their audience, they were contemporaries with Jesus. So it wasn't very difficult for them to look at the Christmas story and go, right, got it. He was born. Of course he was born. He was a human being. I, I heard him speak, you know. We ate dinner together. I I held it at his feet, you know, I I listened to him teach, all these things. It was just like, yeah, yeah, of course he's a human being. But they began to unfold the the riches of his divinity in in several different ways, and they connect those to the Old Testament many times. For example, John chapter, whoa, I started like talking as fast as Pastor Bob, and I got tired. I don't know how he does that. Anyway. So, for example, John 1 or, or, or Colossians 1 says that, that he was involved in creation. In fact, all things were created by him and for him. Sounds divine, doesn't it? Or, or um, the patriarchs, those great, you know, leaders, initial leaders in the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. One day uh, Jesus is talking and he says, hey, by the way, you know, Abraham, Abraham and I know each other. And they're like, that's ridiculous. We know you're a human being. We know when you were born. You're born in Bethlehem. <laughs> you're, you're not even 50 yet. Uh, you couldn't possibly know Abraham. He said, no, Abraham saw me. He knows me. How is that possible? Well, because he's talking about pre-incarnate son of God, the divine son of God. The, the writers talk uh, in the New Testament looking back at the Exodus when the people of God were delivered from slavery in Egypt and, and, and they were miraculously provided for and, and they say, and who was the one providing for them? 
was the Son of God. And, and uh, then one day, of course, Jesus is on this mountaintop, and lo and behold, two of the greatest prophets, Elijah and Moses, show up. And they recognize Jesus. <laughs> and they revere him, they honor him, they talk to him. He's known by the prophets as well. Because in his past, before becoming a child, he is the Son of God, the Eternal One, the Divine One, and all those attributes and capabilities are his as well. He also has all the privileges of divinity, and we see an example of that in John chapter 17. Now, this is hours before Jesus would die, and he's praying. He's talking to his Father, God the Father, and he says, I have brought you glory, Father, on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father... You know, I'm coming back. I'll be in your presence again. He says, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, this was his experience prior to his birth, is that as the Son of God, he had complete honor and reverence and worship. Every creature around him acknowledged him for who he really was. And and, and they all afforded him every word of praise and every act of service that was appropriate to his riches, to his, his fabulously rich state of divinity, of being God himself. And this was his experience. He was rich. The child that we remember and we honor at Christmas, it's right that we worship him. I don't know if the, the story of the wise men ever strikes you as strange. They, they would go and they would find a, a, a baby and you would worship a baby? Why would you do that? Well, not because he's a baby, but because of who he is, <laughs> the, the, the very son of God. He was rich. We could think about that for a long time, but our passage in Second Corinthians goes on and says, he was rich, but he became poor. He became poor. That's the completion of the incarnation. Though he was divine, he had the nature of, of a, of, a, of a divine being, of being God, he now takes on a complete, authentic human nature as well. And both of those are together where neither one compromises the other from being genuine and real and experienced in a real way by him. He's both God and man. Now, that is a little confusing, I mean, that's just not, we don't run around and go, hey, look, there's a person with two natures, and, you know, I can see this side and this side. We, we don't have that experience. It is a little challenging to our minds. And, and so down through the centuries, uh, theologians mostly have, have wrestled with that, and sometimes they've gone wildly wrong. <laughs> now, now, the intention was good. Sometimes um, people have come up with at, in, really inadequate solutions to, for describing the incarnation, and, and maybe a, a sincere motive, and that is they, they would set out really wanting to make sure that they protect, protected one side, but they put the other side in jeopardy as they defined it. For example, some people would look at it and go, you know, the, the Bible's clear, you know, Jesus is, is a person, he's like us. He's of our family, and, and, and we can't lose that sense of connection to him. You look at the book of Hebrews, it argues that. We need him. He's our, our high priest who identifies so well with our life, and we don't want to lose his humanity. And so people would take off in that direction. They'd come up with solutions like this. So Jesus was a man. That, that, that was all human being there, but he had God's power in a really unique way. 
Think of like uh, Billy Graham on steroids or something, you know. He could, he could speak to a large crowd and everyone would respond, but he could also feed them lunch, you know, right? He could do a miracle and, and take a little bit of food. It was just like lots of God's power in this human being. But, but what about what the Bible says about his experience before he became a man? What about all that pre-incarnate thing? What about his riches, it's ignoring that. Others said, uh, Jesus, the man, became God. So, you know, he was born. That was just a human being. It was just a child. But at his baptism or maybe his resurrection or something, uh, he became God. He sort of attained divinity. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches either. It certainly protects his humanity, but it doesn't account for the other side. Other theologians sometimes went the other way, that it's important. Listen, we got lots of people around us, and we've got people who do amazing things, and we've got people, and God's power works through them. You cannot lose track of the fact that he's divine. So they did that and and said things like, uh, well, it was God, but he only appeared to be human. You know, that was just um, kind of a facade, because if he just came down and he was just God, you know, have you ever read what happens when people see God in the throne room? They, like, fall down flat. You know, imagine Jesus walking around, and he keeps trying to have conversations, and people just faint. <laughs> it's like, it's not working. So he, he kind of shields that with this kind of, well, it looks human so that you can actually talk to him. Well, again... That's not what the Bible is saying. What, what about Christmas? What does that story mean if it's not a human being? Some said that, that he was God. This, this is a clever one. He was God, but then he stopped that and he became a man. And then once he died, and rose again, he could be God again, right? And, and about a couple hundred years ago, some people went to our, our parallel verses in Philippians who, though he was in his very nature God, he didn't consider that something that he had to hold on to to protect. But he made himself nothing. Sometimes translated, he emptied himself. And as I said, about a couple hundred years ago, some people started saying, ah, that's it. See, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of divinity, of his divine parts. Or some would say just his... uh, just the omni parts, you know, the omnipresence, the all, the all powerful stuff. He put that aside, right, and just kept the moral parts so that he was like love incarnate, but not power incarnate and not all this other, you know, flashy stuff. Just the warm, fuzzy parts were in him. Again, that's, that's not what this verse is saying, and it's not what the Bible teaches in, in its whole about who he is. We need both of those parts if you're going to relate to the real Jesus. You need to let him be who he really is, both God and man. This is saying he gave up his, uh, his exclusive use of all those abilities, and he linked them instead to the limitations of humanity, or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he became poor. He began to experience poverty or the human experience and life. Let me try and illustrate this in a couple different ways. Uh, first of all, uh, let's take the Run for the Hungry. How many of you participated in Run for the Hungry this year? Awesome. Lots of you. That is great. Thank you very much. Um, who, who, can, who did pretty well? They, they know their time and kind of feeling good about your time this year. All right. So right over here, someone, uh, who, who's raising their hand? All right. Is that Levi? All right. Levi, what was your time this year? 
33 something. All right, awesome. Last night we had someone who had a time of 33. 9.15 was 31, so they got to beat. But all right, so Levi had a time of um, 33 minutes. Now, Levi, let's just pretend for a moment that uh, on Christmas, we're, we're pretending, by the way. On Christmas morning, about 8.30, we go over to the high school again, and you and I are going to run the run for the hungry all over again to see what your time is. But uh, here's the trick. What we're going to do is we're going to link arms and we're going to run it together. Now, here's the, here's the bad news, Levi. Um, some of you might remember Thanksgiving weekend. Um, Pastor Matthias had the microphone. He was doing all the sharing. And he, and he told us that he was in his mid-30s, which means he was no long, you know, he couldn't be fast, but he could be quick. And he didn't hurt himself if he moved quick and, and, and so forth. Yeah, so the bad news is I'm in the later portions of my early 50s where I don't yet have to say mid-50s, okay? <laughs> A couple months. <laughs> Which means I'm neither fast nor quick, and I do hurt myself when I move around. <laughs> and I've got an ankle that doesn't really bend anymore. And, and so, you know, we're going to run it together uh, but it, it's not going to be 33 minutes. Sorry, dude. Right? Now, I'm actually sleeping in, so the bet's off. But See, now, if, if Levi and I are out there and we're running the course again, we're not getting across the line in 33 minutes. It's just not happening. But who is Levi, essentially, as it relates to the run for the hungry? He is a 33-minute runner. That's who he is. And, and being duct taped to me doesn't change that. He's not getting across the line in the same time, but it doesn't change who he essentially is. Now, that breaks down, of course, because Jesus wasn't two people strapped together. He was one person with two natures. But we begin to see that now he puts on this, like Levi would have to do, the the very essence of running poverty right here. See? (laughs) He experiences humanity, poverty, limitation, weakness. Think about how Rich he was, his capabilities, and now he's living in one place, (laughs) being able to say one thing at a time, listen to one conversation, on it goes, right? His his divinity is being lived through that. Another illustration would be to think of his divinity as this huge body of water, a lake or an ocean or something. But now he's going to have humanity, which is like a funnel. And he's still got all of that, but it's going to come have to funnel through something narrow, right? His human life. I think we get a glimpse of that at times. Uh, situation like this. He's, uh, he's teaching, you might remember it, and uh, he's teaching in this room, and some people have a, a friend who uh, is lame, can't walk, and so they peel back the roof, and they lower him down in front of him, like, hey, pay attention to this guy, and, you know, can you imagine that? happening right here, and someone gets lowered down because they want him to be healed, and Jesus looks at him and goes, hey, your sins are forgiven, which is not why you came, but he gets that instead, and, and instantly, what, what does the gospel explain? That Jesus knows what people are thinking in the room, right? See, he, he has access to all knowledge, but he's living it through a limited funnel of a human life. And so we see pictures of it within the context of relationship and context of one room at a time. I don't, I don't know if he's 
thinking about what's happening on Saturn and the arrangement of them. I mean, he could, I suppose, because he has access to all that, but we see it coming through his life and relationships. But both are there, his divinity and his humanity. And what a, what a remarkably different experience now for him to be linked to the poverty which exists in the, in the weakness of a human life, the limitations of a human life. And we do see this in his birth story as well. Familiar verses to us. Let me just read a few. We'll, we'll come back to the uh, Christmas story next week, but just briefly. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So here we have this, uh, I don't know how those words strike you, but to me it is that, that charming, lovely, heartwarming, idyllic story that we commemorate with nativity sets and we we, we cheer ourselves with lights and trees. And, and to me, immediately, it makes me think of, uh, of um, Christmases through my life where, where my family gathered and we all went to church and there was candlelight and there was music and we went home through the fog because where I come from, Christmas weather is fog. It's a white Christmas of a different nature. But anyway, and, but, but that I always loved it when it was foggy and we would have a meal, and we would share the evening together, and it was some of the, mo- the, the richest, most wonderful hours of my entire life. This is what these words make me think of, and it, and it makes me feel cozy and warm and happy, right? But see, that's my life overlaid on the story. Take my, you know, my life or your experience back off of that, and what are the, what are the elements of this story? We have this, uh, this great irony, We have this fabulously rich king coming into great poverty in every sense. And I think it's to help us understand that from the very beginning that God's son, though divine, is not going to cheat. You know, God the Father, he, he goes all out here. He goes all out. No special privileges for my son. Any human being is going to be able to look at this and go, wow, that, he understands how rough life can be. Think about his, his beginnings from the perspective of being vulnerable, right? So he, he, he's gone from riches to poverty. He is now a helpless infant. He's gone from being controlling the universe <laughs> to a helpless, dependent infant. He has, now think about taking some of these factors and, and just running them by a social worker, right? A teenage mom, hey, a social worker, I, got, I know this child, this infant, got a teenage mom. All right, okay. Uh, and, and the parents aren't married. All right, well, what else? Well, the, there's poverty, there's financial poverty. And uh, by the way, they're, they're traveling. You know, how, you know how you usually feel really strong and on top of things when you're traveling long distances? Uh, they're traveling. In fact, they're, they're actually homeless. 
they're traveling so much they're homeless. And now um, things have really taken a new turn in the last couple of weeks. Um, they're now fugitives from the authorities. They didn't actually do anything wrong, but they're wanted. And uh, they've fled the country, so they're now foreigners. They're living in another land, and they're separated from all sense of identity, of help from their family and support. And this is, so what do you think? Right? In our modern mindset, we'd be like, whoa, high-risk child. Right? (laughs) We would be, as a society, deeply concerned about the prospects, the safety, the, the, the possibilities for this child. Everything seems to be stacked against him. Everything. I'm kind of like, whoa, father, you know, you could you just give him a little, cut him a little slack somewhere. He just went all out. Poverty. So poor. And, and it makes you think, here he is, he's, he's been in control, and now he's got nothing. What was that like for him to experience? And I thought it, for most of us who like to be in control of things, and even though we're not, we pretend we are, and at least that comforts us a little bit, you know, we, it would, we'd flip out to lose that much, right? We'd be like, I can't handle this anymore. I've just, I, I can't control anything in my life. I've got nothing. And and you think of Jesus being so insecure, and then I realized, well, but that's not, but isn't that the point for us? See, because what did he have? He couldn't, if he came and he was just divine, we'd be like, well, okay, I get that. You're in control. All he could do was trust his father which is precisely all that you can do. It's all you can do. And maybe you feel poor, maybe you feel weak, maybe you feel humble or you feel vulnerable to something in your life, financially or work or relationally or wherever it is. Jesus says, I know. But you see, here's the thing. I was actually no more vulnerable than if I'd held on to that power because my father has that power. And he's a loving father. He was actually just as secure as if he'd held on to it. God makes it clear he can work with us when we're in any position and circumstance in life. Jesus became poor. And Corinthians reminds us It had a purpose. It was so that he could make you rich. That's what he was after. So that you could be rich. Now, what are these riches? Well, we really talk about them all the time. We could look at a lot of different places. But Ephesians 3 will do. It says this. This is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. So so here's good news. A lot of times we cry out to God, what are you doing, God? Here's his answer. Here's God's plan. You could know what he's up to. It was his plan that that everyone, Jews and Gentiles, could believe the good news. That's understanding who Jesus most essentially is and what he has done for you. The Son of God, a human being, gone to the cross so that you could be rich. He says both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. What are those riches? 
Well, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness that comes not just with, uh, all right, I forgive you, but I really don't want to see you. (laughs) Forgiveness that comes with reconciliation. That kind of forgiveness. And, And reconciliation that's not just, all right, come on back home, but the kind of reconciliation that, that Pastor Bob was teaching about the last two weeks in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. Wide open arms running down the lake can hardly wait to embrace you and give you a party kind of acceptance and forgiveness. Those kind of riches. A sense of belonging. A new life. The, the Holy Spirit, personal guidance, absolute truth, present joy, certain hope, triumph over death, a glorious future, riches, access to the one who was rich, and now to his very riches themselves can be ours. He became poor so that we could be rich. And you notice in all these riches, none of them can be purchased with a dollar. None of them can be put in a box and wrapped and put under a tree. None of them require batteries. None of them you have to return. None of them wear out. They don't go out of style, and they never fail to satisfy your heart. Riches. As we close today, we're going to uh, celebrate communion. So we're going we're gonna to serve you uh, now, and you can, you can pass the uh, elements around. Hold on to those, and then to get through one more passage... Um, we will celebrate together. But, but it's, it's riches that are, are ours or can be ours even today. But uh, Philippians, again, explains that, that the, the process, the means to gaining that is really important. Again, he was his, in his very nature, he was divine, he was God. But he didn't consider that something he had to protect. He could, he could take on humanity. He could take the nature of a servant, a human being. And, and he could be found in appearance as a man and, and, and humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he, he becomes poor. He becomes a human being. But it's not just a human being. He has to then live in a particular way. He has to live in a humble way, in an obedient way, because it's the only way you could take... Yeah, he's got a physical body that could die now. You see, God can't die, but a physical body could die. So now God has a a means of purchasing our forgiveness, our salvation. But to get that body all the way to a cross took submission and obedience and humility. It's what he did with his humanity, what he did within his poverty that also brought us to a place of experiencing riches. So here we are, and it's Christmas time, and, and we've, got, we've got trees. I think they're pretty. And, and, and you know, they, they picture Christmas for us and, and uh, the incarnation, the coming of God's Son, but we understand these trees have a purpose, and it's to lead to the other tree beyond them. And that's our privilege then to hold these small symbols today. So he didn't just receive a body, he received a body so that it could be broken. 
wasn't just a human life. It was a human life that could be spilled out so that you could be rich. This is the purpose behind Christmas. And this is what we celebrate. So as we prepare to uh, eat and, and drink these symbols today, would you take a moment? Would you just enjoy God's presence? Would you thank him for these things? Would you thank him for the beginning of it all at Christmas, the incarnation of God's Son? Just pray in your own thoughts in quietness now. Father, we thank you for what we hold in our hands. Really the culmination of what you began at Christmas. We thank you for this season where we, we think about a challenging subject, the, the incarnation of your son, but, but we thank you so much that it was so purposeful. It was such grace to us that your son who was rich would become poor for us, experience our life and taste our struggles, to empathize with us and care about us and love us, and then ultimately to, to live that perfect life in submission to you and giving himself on a cross. Father, we thank you for a baby who would uh, grow and come to the point one day where he could take bread and say, this is... This is my body. This is my body that's broken. And this cup is a new covenant. And he could offer us these things that we too could have access to you and, and, and to be your family, your children. And uh, we don't dare to say that we're rich on our own, but because you have said it, that you have made us rich. Thank you, Father, for these things. We rejoice as we eat this simple meal now. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus said, take, eat in remembrance of me. And this cup symbolizes the new covenant, that you are belonging to God and God's child. Drink in remembrance of him. Father, again, we thank you. We praise you, and as we go out and as we look forward to uh, celebrating this Christmas, we do so with uh, hearts that you have encouraged by your word. We do so with hearts that uh, we ask you to uh, accept our faith and strengthen our faith 
trusting in Christ, and we, we sing this song about uh, trusting in Him alone, not, a, not as a, j- just some words to know that the service is over, but as worship and as a prayer and as, a, as an intention that this season we would be known as people of faith, people who are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. We desire this. In your name, amen.